0: This is Jason and we're on one of my favorite series titles of all time. It's called Summer Camp Romance. Summer Camp Romance is this idea when you were a kid and you went away to camp and you fell in love for the week. And your emotions were so high and so intense and the love seemed so real till you went back home and forgot about it till next summer. And what we're doing during this series is looking at that's how people often live their relationship out with the Lord. And there's a better way. So let's take a look at what the Word of God says about how our relationship with God can transition from a summer camp romance to a real relationship. Let's get started. This week, we are wrapping up summer camp romance. It is week four. If you were here last week or if you caught it on the podcast, Pastor Brendan Washington spoke last week. And it was called Counting the Costs, and I'm just so thankful for him and his family. They brought a word, as Stone would say, I said a word to all of us about counting the cost of following God and uh, what he may be asking you to sacrifice in order to get you the blessing. But the blessing comes after the sacrifice, but we just want the blessing. We don't want the sacrifice. And so for, throughout this series of Summer Camp Romance, week one, we talked about this idea of living a life that is following the Lord without having a Summer Camp Romance feeling to it. And we talked about being willing to do the difficult things. Week two, we talked about living a life that is an example, an object lesson for the people around you who are watching to see what does it look like to follow the Lord. And, And summer camp romance is this idea that when you are first in love of what it looks like. Now, I didn't say when you were in love. I said when you are in love of, and there's a difference if you've ever been in love of you, there is a difference. Like you talk in a higher-pitched voice than you normally have. You give each other like these weird names like Schmoopy, and all these things that you would never call any. Is that just me? That you would never call anybody. And, and when you're in a summer camp romance, like the sun is shining brighter, the flowers smell more fragrant. Some of you are in that right now, and it's disgusting. I have to stifle the vomit in my mouth even to say it. But I'm thankful that you're in love uh, of. But I will tell you this that dating brings out the best and marriage brings out the rest or so my wife says and and what happens though is is that summer camp romances when feelings are so strong and then life gets in the way and it kind of fades back to normalcy and And that's what we do with our relationship with God. That's what we've been talking about for the last month, is how do we avoid this thing where God is super close for a while and we're passionate about reading our Bible and we're in prayer and then you just get kind of busy and life just kind of gets in the way and and then then it fades. And then what happens, though, is is that we live crisis to crisis instead of glory to glory. And what if I told you there is a better way? And so what we're going to be looking at today is the story of the Israelites in Exodus. So I'm giving you some time to find it, but it's super easy. It's Genesis followed by Exodus. If you get to Leviticus, you've gone too far. And so for those of you that have real Bibles, make your way there. For those of you whose Bibles glow, I'm giving you time to pull down the drops screen. And and, uh, for those of you just going to stare at me like I have a third eye, then we'll just go through that uncomfortable season together. Before I went into ministry... Let me rephrase that. Before I got paid to be in ministry, I was a middle school history teacher for 10 years. So for 10 years, for seven hours a day, I taught six classes with approximately 28 middle school students per day. I lived in the land of puberty. Mixed in with hormones and body odor, and, and, and now you have middle school. I think some of you in here are middle school teachers, and that's a calling let me tell you what that's a calling dana and and but i loved it and you want to know why i loved it is because i had my own reality tv show in front of me every day in which everybody is emotionally unstable and crazy no two days were ever the same when you're teaching middle school let me tell you i have seen some things I have seen some things. I have found some things left in desks as well that would blow your mind, but that's another story for another day. Definitely not in the context of a church service. But what's amazing about middle schoolers is how quickly they go through relationships. It's amazing. I used to keep, and I'm not making this up, at my desk, I would keep a clipboard in which I would try to track relationships amongst my middle schoolers, and it filled up quickly. And it was amazing because middle schoolers and some of you in high school, you do this too. Like you, you start dating somebody and you fall in love, and they're your soulmate, and you're, you're naming your future children together. Back when I was a kid, and this is a long time ago, we used to take paper bags from the grocery store, and you had to make book covers around the outside of your book. Some of you are like, when did they have paper at a grocery store? It's a long time ago. And, 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 and girls would write the names with hearts around it of whoever they're interested in. And I just drew the Stussy S's. don't even know if you know what that is. Mike, you know what's up. And, 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 and it's like, it was, it's amazing middle schoolers because, like, they go from 0 to 100 quickly. And, and then it goes from 100 back to 0 quickly. And there was this one boy. His name is Hayden. And I hope some way he finds this sermon because you know who you are, Hayden. And, and, and he came... He came into my classroom, right, late, dropping all of his things behind him like pig pen on Charlie Brown, and and he walks in, and he sits down, and then as he leaves, he goes, Mr. Bob, it's time to update your clipboard. And I said, okay, cool. Who dumped you today, Hayden? And he, he tells me the name of the girl. I don't even remember. It was like wife number eight for him. And, 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 and I said, oh, well, how, when did you start dating? He goes, this class. Wouldn't you break up? This class. <laughs> Somebody called the Guinness Book of World Records because y'all don't even sit by each other. How in 49 minutes did you go from we're dating to we're broken up because I taught on ancient Chinese dynasties and nothing screams romance like ancient Chinese dynasties. How, how, how did that happen? I remember when I was in college... I had a roommate named Paul, Paul Sosmosky. You know who you are. And Paul dated this girl named Sarah. I don't remember your last name, but you know who you are. And, And Paul and Sarah were terrible together, individually great human beings. But like uranium and plutonium, you mix them together, you have a nuclear weapon. And when they started dating, it was a nuclear weapon. Oh, they loved big, but they fought big, and they broke up big. It was great to watch. But not great because, you know, your circle of friends that we all shared the same friends. You would be Team Sarah or Team Paul, Team Jacob and Team Edward. Some of you have no idea what that means. I shouldn't, but I do. Anyways. Uh, And and so they would break up and they knew they were terrible together. They knew they were dysfunctional, but they would start dating other people and then it would break up or they would get lonely. And they defaulted back to what was comfortable and what they knew, even though they knew that wasn't what was best for them. Lean in. This is elite level preacher pivot. What we're going to look at is the life of the Israelites. And when the Israelites would face times of uncertainty, they would default back to their previous dysfunction, even knowing it was detrimental to their walk with God. And we're going to look at why you and I and how you and I do the same thing. As promised, let's jump into Exodus 24, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments I have written on for their instruction. In case you're like, wait a second, is that the 10 Commandments? Yes, it is. Verse 13. Then Moses set out with Joshua, who? Underline that because we're going to come back to a leadership lesson with Joshua at his side. And Moses went up to the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us. Until we come back to you, Aaron and her are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. Verse 15, when Moses went up onto the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. So that lets us know that this is at Mount Sinai, and the glory of the Lord shone upon it. That's the Shekinah glory, baby. Verse 17, to the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up onto the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. How many days? How many nights? So let me just paint this picture for a moment. They're at Mount Sinai. The Israelites are around the base of the mountain. Moses had led them out of slavery in Egypt just a few years earlier, and now here they are. They look up at the mountain, it is on fire. They know it is God. Yet, they're going to enter a season of doubt, though the evidence of God is all around them. Now, when you see the number 40 in Scripture, it almost always is talking about a period of trial or testing, and this is no different. Guess what time it is? do map time. Let's go. It's been a while. If it's your first time here, you'll see this again. So for some of you, you're having flashbacks to your history class back in the 1940s, Gerald, and you're, you're like, man, I got a headache just looking at all of this. I get it. But let me just point out to where we are real quick. So we're talking about the Israelites. They leave Egypt. You'll see Ramses there, named after several pharaohs. That's Egypt. There's the Nile River going down, though it's floating up. But anyways... Now, the red arrows is the way they could have gone. It could have been a very short journey to the promised land. But instead, what happens is it goes the long route, and that's another story for another day. But now, look at that beautiful aqua color, and it is going all the way down to the bottom, still in Egypt, to Mount Sinai, way down there at the bottom by the Red Sea. And so this is where it's going to take place so that lets you know about how far into their journey they're in, and they still have a long ways to go. These are the Israelites leaving leaving Egypt and headed to the Promised Land. Moses is going to take them on a 40-year journey, but Moses is going to be up on the mountain for 40 days. And that's a long time to not know exactly what's going on. And they see evidence that God is there, but 40 days, man, that's a long time to not hear from God, know where you're going next, or know even what's going on. Can I be honest with you for a minute? That's rhetorical. I have a microphone. Let me be honest with you for a minute. You're a control freak. Some of you more than others. You know how I know? Because I is one. And when things go on in our life and we don't know where it's going or what God is doing or what God is not doing, we want an explanation. But I'm going to be real honest with you. God doesn't owe you an explanation. He is God. But that hurts a little bit because, like, I want to know. And, and, and then what happens also is we won't put ourselves into a situation Unless we know that we're equipped to complete that and be successful at it. So, like, I'm not going to go do this or take this step till I know how all the variables are going to play out. And what that says is, is I'm not going to follow you, God, till you give me an explanation, until you lay out everything that's going to happen. And that's not how God works, it's not how relationships work. Summer camp romance, feelings, emotion. No devotion. Every relationship is built on trust. Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, so long, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. And after this fellow Moses, interesting phrase, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed them and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. In case you're not noticing, this is incredibly sacrilegious. Not only are they making a a, a God, now they're giving that God credit for what big case G God did. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. The audacity to think this is going to be a festival to the Lord? So the next day, people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So Joshua leaves. Now there's Aaron who's in charge. This is your leadership lesson for some of you. Listen to this. The people around were asking Aaron to do something that Aaron knew was not what God said. But he caved into the peer pressure of the society around them and became a terrible leader. I don't know if you know this, but as time goes on, society is going to put pressure on Christians and churches and men's and men and heads of household to compromise what society is going to say is going to be okay, though it is clearly against what God says. So my question is, what kind of leader are we going to be? because he caved and he gave in. And it says right here that they would eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Here's an artist's painting of this. Now, the revelry is just one simple word, but but if you study it, well, the Hebrew, it, it is making a clear reference to worshiping like the pagans worship. And, and, and pagan worship involved a particular song, incantations, some dancing, and there's even a chance that it involved in sexual fornication because that was pretty commonplace for worship in a, in a pagan way. So imagine from God's perspective for just a moment. I brought them out of Egypt. I showed them my faithfulness. And in the middle of 40 days, how quickly they forget what we've done. How far we've come. And how I've blessed them. So my question when I'm looking at this is like, why why a calf? Why why not a ash or a pole or a bale or something? Like why why a calf? Well, remember we talked about where they came out of slavery. Where'd they come from? It starts with an E and ends with Egypt. You want another guess? Yeah, you're smart. They came out of Egypt. Slavery. And there's a chief god at this time, lowercase g, in Egypt by the name of Apis. Those of you taking notes, A-P-I-S. Here's a picture of it, literally on a papyrus scroll. Here's a handmade artifact of Apis. Apis was the god of fertility, prosperity, and power. I would love to stand up here and tell you that Yahweh, my God, is the God of fertility, prosperity, and power. And those are the only things that he will ever do or ever ask of you is just make your life more prosperous, give you more power, give you a bigger platform, put a blue check mark next to your name that you don't have to pay for. That's not who God is. My God is a God that says... In this world, you will have trouble. He says, if they rejected me, they will reject you. He says, you're going to have to die to yourself, pick up your cross daily. That it will not be better, but it will be worth it. And during a season where the Egyptians didn't know what was going on, didn't know what was next, didn't know what was going to be asked of them, went through a difficult time, They wanted to create their own God. Here's another picture of what an artist says this scene would have looked something like. Here's what they did. Lean into this. This is going to probably be the most important two minutes of our time today. Is in the unknown, they reverted to their old God. Did you hear that? In the season of the unknown, they went back to what was comfortable. They went back to what was dysfunction because they would rather know than not know. And they went back to the things that they knew were against God. And and you and I do this now. We may not have a golden calf in our house, but some of you, some of us, we go back in times of uncertainty to relationships, relationships, money. Money gives us a false sense of security and power, prosperity. Some of us go back to the God of ourselves, our own pride. We forget what the Israelites forgot. The Israelites forgot for a moment that it was God who got them out of slavery. And so what's interesting is, is that you and I sometimes, we forget and we think that it was ourselves that got us salvation. We're the ones that hung on the cross. You know what I think the God, lowercase g, of today's modern church is? Convenience. We go to church when it's convenient. Aren't you thankful you're here today? There's people that were supposed to be here today, but they had a hard week from work and taking their kids to sports games, so they took Sunday off to rest. Some of us will give the minimum, I'll show up late, I'll leave early, I won't serve, I won't tithe, I'm going to be here as quick as I can because I don't want to be inconvenienced. Being used by God and helping broken people will always be inconvenient. It will always be a price to pay. Aren't you glad you're here today? Imagine if you weren't. But during the season of unknown, we revert back to our old gods. There's one thing that all of us in here have in common. At some point in your past, present, or in the future, you will pray for somebody to be healed, that God will have them die anyway. How are you going to handle that? We're all going to be praying for something that God is going to say no. That's not my will. How are we going to handle that? Here's a great question, too. How's God going to handle this when he finds out what they did down there? Spoiler, not well. Because God takes having other gods before him very serious. More serious than you and I give it credit for today. Here we are. 32 verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. So now he's like pushing the blame over to Moses on your people. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and they have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Not only did they make their own God, not only did they... They involve worshiping with it, engage in worshiping. They they, they also gave it credit for the things that God did. What's the reason you have a very very next breath in your lungs right now? Don't you give credit to anything other than God. Verse 9, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them, that I may destroy them. Ooh, God, he ain't happy. He says, then I will make you into a great nation. What he simply says to Moses right here is, I'm going to wipe them out again, but the same promise I gave to Abraham, I'm going to give to you. I will still make a great nation. Now, Now, there's a lot of things in this world that divide us. Even let's talk about within the church. I got one... Phrase, two words that I can say that will divide this room right now. Are you ready? Donald Trump. Every one of you has some sort of opinion right now, and I doubt it's indifference. I'll do something slightly less controversial but equally as divisive. Taylor Swift. Now, after the Super Bowl, Taylor and I, our summer camp romance is over. As always next year. A few years ago, when I first got here, we were in the middle of a huge divide in this church, and it was people who were pro-vaccination and anti-vax. Like, whatever it is, there's always divides. But I have actually found the one thing that actually really is a divide amongst us. You want to know what it is? I think I should say yes, but I'm not sure. Is this a trick question? Here's the real division. There are only two types of people in this room right now, and you're one or the other. And the first one is this. Some of you in this room, this picture right here makes you start to panic a little bit. Because you, at the moment that it's a quarter tank left, you're already looking up on your phone. Not if you're driving, looking up on your phone like, where's the nearest gas station? Like, we're about to break down on the side of the road and you panic and where's the nearest buckies? And, and you're just like panicking a little bit. And if that's you, quarter tank of gas or below, it's time to fill up. Proudly raise your hand right now. Here's the divide. The other half of you saw that picture and thought, there's plenty of gas. And you like this picture. At this moment is when you start looking up. "Ah, We should probably stop for gas sometime soon. If that's you, proudly raise your hand. I'm one of y'all too. Because I learned in Vacation Bible School the song that said, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine. (laughs) Now, here's the problem. Why am I telling this story? I'm not entirely sure we'll figure it out together as we go on. But the problem is, is when you and your spouse are on two sides of that divide, it makes for an interesting road trip. Because right about here is when I'm like, hey, I think we should probably start looking for a gas station. And and then my wife's like, no, you should have done that 20 minutes ago. And then I tell her, I'm like, listen, I'm the leader of this home. And she says, we're not at home. This is my car. So a while ago, a little while ago, not long, uh, I got a new car. I don't mean to brag. It's a 28 Camry. No, 2018 Camry. Wow. 28. Yeah, they give me stuff four years ahead of time. That's how cool I am. Hashtag influencer. Never do that again. A 2018 Camry, don't mean to brag, but previously, right before that, my car still had a cassette tape and I had to literally roll the windows down like this. So 2018 is a big deal to me. Paid for cash, by the way, because that's how I roll. Borrowed from my grandma. And I was driving to Kentucky a while ago, and I've noticed something interesting about Kentucky. I know we have some people who drive from Kentucky every week to be down here, which is amazing. But in Kentucky, if you pass a gas station, you may not ever see one again. And So I was on empty. I mean empty like even i was starting to panic a little bit good news is i was in the car by myself so if i broke down the side of the road like i wasn't going to tell anybody and then my wife told me about something that this 2018 camry has it's like this is right here it's a fuel gauge fuel range and and what's cool about guys like me that like the little light to shine is now i know exactly how many miles until really it's zero See, before, it's always kind of this game. It's like, you know, I know I'm playing Russian roulette with my car, and it may be on the side of the road, but we'll see. And this now, all of a sudden, I felt so much more comfortable. Do you want to know why? Because now I had the control. Now I knew exactly how far the distance was till I had to make a decision, lean into this. It would be so much easier following God if we had a fuel range. For his plan and purpose. I would love if I knew that my prayer would be answered if it was only 13 prayers away. And if I had one of these where I'm like, cool, I just got to pray 12 more times and God will answer. I would love if I had a fuel range that said, hey, God is going to open this door for you and it's going to be this many days away. I would love if i had a fuel range of god to say okay this is what i'm gonna ask of you and here's the sacrifice and this is when i'm going to ask it of you and it's going to be right here because what i would do is it means i took all the control and i wouldn't have to trust but that's not how god works for those of you that are married imagine if your spouse didn't actually believe that you loved them. And every day they had a list of things that you had to do to prove that you loved them. They wouldn't trust you. So, the Israelites, they want to know how far it is, how long they have to wait, how far they have to go. And God is not pleased with that. There's no trust. Some of you have been praying for a long time for something. And you gave up. Because you don't actually trust that he hears you. What does that mean to God? It's pretty funny, actually, when we think about it, that we have no problem thinking that God created the whole universe with just his words. Yeah, that's no pro- Yeah, I believe God did that. We have no problem believing that Jesus conquered death, that he went to heaven to prepare a place for us. Yeah, that's no problem. I believe God can do that. I believe God can do that. But my situation right here, God can't do that. It sounds pretty ridiculous, right? But how many of us have been there before? So where we left off, God is mad. He's about to destroy them. Which is an interesting part to have the mood music start playing in five, four, three, two, one. Praise God. Listen to this. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people? Your people, God whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? He's saying, why would you bring them so far to just give up now? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring disaster on the people that he threatened. So what What he does is, what Moses does is he steps in front of God. God has to have payment for this sin because he's holy and he's just. And this type of behavior deserves death and it deserves punishment. And what Moses does is he steps in between God and the people and he says, I am going to intercede on their behalf. Don't miss this. This is an echo throughout Scripture showing us Jesus and what he did. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews 7, through 25. This is the last scripture we have today. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Amen. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who love to come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. There's some peculiar language in this passage that you'll miss. It's present tense. What he's saying right here is because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood, and then it says because he always lives, not lived, lives to intercede for those. You know what that means? What Jesus did on the cross Was a one time payment, but that he is still interceding on our behalf. And because he lives forever, even right now, he is interceding on our behalf. He is taking the area between a holy God and sinful people that deserve hell, they deserve the punishment and the wrath of God. And Jesus is standing in the middle, interceding. And he's saying, I'll die for them, I will pay the price for them. That happened on the cross, but the beautiful part of that language in Hebrews is that it's present tense. He is still interceding on our behalf. And that's how God can look at you and I and see what Jesus did rather than what we're doing. Because it is constant. It's okay to celebrate. We're wrapping up summer camp romance, I'm just thinking about times and seasons of my life of my own relationship with God, and during times where it felt so close, and, and, and I know what happened in those seasons where God felt the closest He's ever felt. And God is omnipresent. So He's never closer or further away. It was my dependence on Him that changed. And during those seasons of pain and brokenness, he felt closer because I was dependent upon him. It was my daily breath. It was during those times of brokenness where I didn't know if I was going to make it through just one day. He was there. So how do we avoid summer camp romance? Be willing to do the difficult things. Be willing to have a life that's a living example for those of you, that, those that are around you, for counting the cost of following Jesus. And the very last thing, trust in the wilderness and in the silence that he is faithful, that he is good, and that he is sovereign. And to remember, while we didn't become free from slavery in Egypt, he did set us free from being slaves to sin. And he did set us free from a punishment that was waiting for us. And if he doesn't ever do anything else for me, that's enough. And during those seasons of waiting, I will trust because he's brought me this far.